Good morning, church. We have kids in here now, so I'm sure that we can do better than that. Good morning. All right. I know at least mine likes to yell, so I expect, expect a little bit more. Uh, well, my name is John Fox, and I am the interim lead pastor here. And today, we are beginning, as we've been talking about for some time now, our new Psalms series for the summer. And this morning, as you came in, you received a booklet that we'll be using for the summer that will uh, help guide you through what we're doing. And uh, as I was looking over it, I actually realized something just uh, recently that there was a, uh, a uh, citation that was left out. So if, if you didn't get one of these, you, you can get them at the back. There's some uh, boxes at the back. Um, we're not going to be using this during the sermon, but you can use it afterwards on your own time. And uh, what should be here that's not here, just to uh, tell you and give credit where credit is due, is on um, page, page number six, there should be a, uh, there should be a, uh, a citation there that uh, this resource at least partly came from uh, some friends of mine over at Bible Center Church. So you can write down biblecenterchurch.com uh, on that page if you want. Uh, they really, um, there's some, some friends of mine and they have gone through the Psalms themselves a number of times. And there are uh, some things in this book that really, really uh, come from their church. The format, overall format, I would say, is something that they've developed. And then there are some other things, the background information in the psalm that we'll get, uh, that you can read on your own, uh, which you can find in most commentaries, and then uh, some of the, uh, the templates for reflection as well. So, credit credits to you. I want to make you aware of that. Um, I'm really appreciative to them for sharing. And, um, and then also, bring your attention to a, a few resources before we jump in. These are all cited on the uh, bibliography at the end of the booklet, but um, they're kind of special ones that I would highlight to you as we begin to enter the Psalms and think about the Psalms that have been very helpful for me. Uh, the first would be Praying the Bible by Donald S. Whitney. Praying the Bible by Donald S. Whitney. Uh, Dr. Whitney was one of my professors, and he is renowned for uh, one particular thing, which this book is about. It's how to pray the Bible. It's a, uh, an old Puritan method that was used for a long time and then lost for a long time, and he's recovered it. And really, this book is just a, an instructional of how to actually pray the Bible. When we come to the Psalms in particular and we see things in the Bible like uh, praise the Lord, then that's actually a command. It's a command to stop and Praise the Lord. And, and those are things we kind of skip over. And I would commend this to you. It's a very short read and it's a simple read. So that's kind of low shelf if, uh, if you want to start reading something. Second, I would commend to you Answering God by Eugene Peterson. This is uh, by every authority in the field that I have found. They say the best book on the Psalms and prayer. And after reading it, I would have to agree. It's just absolutely incredible. So if you want to take another kind of step in terms of reading for the summer, for the Psalms, uh, this book, Answering God, is, 
is absolutely fantastic. It, it deals with the Psalms as poetry, which they are. And last but not least, I would like to commend to you uh, Timothy Keller's book on prayer, which is entitled simply Prayer. So uh, not too flashy of a title, but this is one of the best books on prayer that I've found. Uh, Psalms is mentioned in here. It's not just a study on the Psalms, but it is a book dealing really comprehensively with prayer in all sorts of different ways. So if you want to reach for the high shelf this summer and have a lot of free time and, uh, and want to really enrich your own soul, then this is the book to, uh, to go through. So uh, with that, I'd like to look at the booklet real quick, and we'll get into the sermon here in just a second. But this is uh, some necessary stuff to do. So if you would grab your booklet and uh, turn to the first page, you'll notice the uh, table of contents. And I won't go through everything step by step for you here. I just want to point out that really this book is formed off of two main things, Psalms preparation and Psalms practice. Psalms preparation helps you to study the Psalms. You're entering into a kind of literature that's different than you're probably used to, and so you need to know how to deal with it, and a little bit of background information, why we would study it, and all those sorts of things. Psalms practice really gives you the ability to digest the Psalms. So when you start reading the Bible, when you start reading the Psalms, and even if you know the the sort of information going on, background-wise, that's not sufficient. What you need to do is learn how to meditate. You need to learn how to digest the Psalms because they're different. They're totally different. Um, and so that's the rest of the book. There are some, some uh, templates that help you do that, some observations. And then at the back of the book is kind of a, a diagnostic, four-question diagnostic by Tim Keller that I found really helpful. It will, uh, it will help you figure out where you sit in relation to the Psalms and prayer pretty quickly. And so with that, one last mention in the book, and that is that on page three, it says how to use this book, and there are five different ways to do it, okay? So the way I designed it was sort of a choose-your-own-adventure path. You can uh, choose any one of these levels, and depending on the levels that you put in will determine the amount of sort of enjoyment and richness that you get out. So if you want to just read the Psalms, then you, uh, just, just the Psalms that we're going through, then you can do that. That's level one. Level two is to reflect on it, filling out some of those forms weekly. Level three is to observe, uh, filling out another, another form, and that's also going through one of Donald Whitney's uh, examples. And then four is to read multiple Psalms. So if you say, you know what, I am just an animal, and I want to read through all 150 psalms two times for the summer, then that is for you. And if, uh, regardless of that, if you just want to, to get that kind of diagnostic, then go over the four questions. That's five. So really the way I kind of mapped it out is to say that if you're in a community group and you're using this through the summer, then it'd probably be best for you to just use one, two, and five. Although you can do three and four. Uh, if you do one, two, and five, then that will really provide a great basis for conversation of where you're at with prayer and the Psalms and your own soul. So that's a little bit of an instructional about the booklet, and uh, that's all I have to say about that. You are let loose to go and learn, so I hope you take advantage of it. 
And as we uh, start to get into the sermon here, I'd also like to point out some things about the Psalms. Um, the Psalms are something that we're looking at because, like I've said, we're in a time of transition. Uh, transition in a natural way of the rhythms of life with the summer. The summer opens up opportunities for us that we don't normally have, maybe some rest, and we would be wise to leverage that time. Very wise. I don't know why, but every summer, I, I get so geared up thinking about all the things I have to do, and the book lists pile up, and all the, all the activities, and by the end of it, I really, I'm always frustrated because I thought, man, I just, I didn't take advantage of the time that I had. Uh, and, uh, and the Psalms help us to do that. So I commend you to you that really as a church, it's a time to take advantage of the natural rhythms that we have in our life that God's given to us. Um, besides that, going into the, the Psalms here, we need to note that it's a different kind of literature than we're used to. We'll get into the Psalms in just a second, but before we do, we need to recognize that this is poetry. It's not prose. Most of us use prose all the time, uh, and we're very used to it. It is the language of information exchange. You don't really need anything beautiful. You just need the data, right? Just you tell me, I tell you. This is not poetry. Poetry is made for beauty. It's something else. Eugene Peterson talks about it this way. He says that poetry is language used with personal intensity. Poetry grabs for the jugular. Far from being cosmetic language, it is intestinal. I love that. Uh, it moves you. Poetry is made to move you. It's made to move your heart. You can read one thing a thousand times in prose, and then you read it in poetry, and you say, I never knew that. It changes you. It impacts you. It, it gives you new insights from the heart. And this is what the Psalms are made out of, poetry. If I were talking to somebody and I said, as an example, my wife is pretty, that would be prose. And it's appropriate. But at the same time, if I was talking to somebody and I said, as she spoke, the moonlight hit her face and the radiance poured forth and I was overcome with affection which is how I talk about my wife every day, <laughs> then it would be poetry. And that's the purpose. Poetry draws out for us meaning, and it gives to us reality. The, the thing that you could hear a thousand times in prose becomes alive in poetry. And this is what the Psalms are about. They're, they're poetry. But they're not simply poetry. They're songs. And this is probably the main way that we interact with poetry today. It's in song form. And this is why we love music. We love songs because it stirs us. Whenever a new album, a new song comes out that you enjoy, what do you do immediately? You enjoy it. But then the, the thing right after that is you have to share it. Why? Because it becomes to you beautiful. And the Psalms are that. The Psalms are beautiful. They are, they are poetry. They are songs. And the Psalms exist not just for our feelings. The Psalms exist, even though that, that's good, it can help stir our affections and stir our feelings, but the Psalms mainly exist to teach us how to pray. That's what they do. And this is how the nation of Israel has used them 
for millennia, and God's people have used them for millennia, that the Psalms are the place when you are in anguish, when you are in joy, when you are, when you are complacent even, you go to the Psalms. Why? It's because the Psalms have the power to stir your heart. And they do it to pray. So that's a little bit about the Psalms and kind of knowing our, uh, our literature that we're getting in. There. And there's one last thing to, uh, to note here, and that is the gates. The gates. What do I mean by the gates? Most commentators agree that, that the Psalms are poetry. All agree that. Um, but they, a lot of them also agree that Psalm 1 and 2 are designed perfectly for the Psalms. They, they are the gate of the Psalms. Or some people say that they're the pillars. Flagging the way on either side of the entrance are two gigantic pillars of the Psalms. And it is Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. And the purpose of that is to provide a way into the Psalms. That is to say, if you're going to understand all these, these love songs, all these musings, all these, these lamentations, all the different kinds of Psalms that are listed. There's a handout in your book that'll give you the different types. There's tons of them. If you're going to understand these and know them, then you have to enter in through Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. It's the only way. It's the only way. And so what we have to do today really is look at these gigantic pillars. That's our task. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. And that leads to the main point for today. And the main point is this. That to learn to pray, we must begin with meditation and adoration. We must begin with meditation and adoration. And the points for today are, are uh, similar. That prayer is about meditation, prayer is about adoration, and prayer is about blessedness. And before I just jump in to reading Psalm 1, I think it's particularly appropriate that I pray for us. So let me do that. Lord, we ask as we come in as students, as learners, not only of all those who have gone before us in the faith to, to know you and love you and learn how to commune with you, but God, also as people who are here now in the 21st century living in a busy world, God, would you teach us what it means to pray? Would you teach us what it means to commune with you and to open up our hearts to have honest conversations with you and to see your son as beautiful? We ask this in your name. Amen. So let's begin. Psalm 1. The first psalm that we're going to talk about this morning is a psalm of meditation. It's called a Torah psalm. It's how it's classified, or also classified as a garden psalm. And that's because of the, uh, the sort of meditation involved. That's what you typically do in a garden. And the image that you should associate with this psalm is that of a garden. Let me read it for you. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. 
Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm 1 calls us to slow down. That's the first thing to note. Psalm 1 calls us to slow down. That if you noticed, Psalm 1, and I won't go through it line by line, because we have another one to interact with here. But Psalm 1 really just presents to us two different paths, doesn't it? It says that there's a path of the righteous and a path of the wicked. And this is an intentional call. It's an intentional call to slow down. Psalm 1 comes, comes before Psalm 2 because we're not ready for Psalm 2. Psalm 2 comes and says, you need to learn how to pray. Here's where we're going to begin. Be quiet. Listen. Think. Meditate. See, in our busyness, especially in our busy culture, we are not prepared for Psalm 2 yet. We have to go through Psalm 1. And, you know, according to, uh, to recent uh, reports, the average person, the average person, especially in this room, I imagine, sees around 5,000 advertisements a day. The range is more like 4,000 to 10,000. Just constant advertisements, messaging all the time. Go, go, go. What does that do to your soul? What I think that does to your soul is make you a person who just skims material. We're just, this is our culture. This is our way of life all the time. Facebook, Instagram, news feeds, articles, sound bites, all the time, just constant information going, 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 not slowing down. You wake up, you probably look at your phone. You go to bed, probably look at your phone. Happens all the time. And in this fast-paced sense of life, what do you have to do? Even without a phone or modern technology, the psalmist comes and says, you're too busy. If they're too busy, how busy are we? The call is to slow down, slow down. We're too busy-minded. We will never learn to pray if we're so, so busy. And so we have to slow down. And when we slow down, what is the first thing that we see here? That God speaks to us. You see, the righteous person who's listed here in Psalm 1 meditates. But the righteous person has nothing to meditate on if God hasn't already spoken. This is really key for understanding prayer in the Psalms overall. If you come to God, if you enter the Psalms and you start reading and, and you, you go through this and you just say, prayer really is about just me. It's about my needs. It's about me communicating with God. It's about I need help. Is that, is that what prayer is to you? The Psalms call us to say, no. Prayer is not about you. Prayer does not begin with you. Prayer begins with God. Prayer is essentially a response to God, to what God has already said, to what God has already done. There is no prayer that has ever happened in human history that is not a response to what God has already said. We have it backwards when we often think about prayer. We think that we need to step into a, a time and a place and start a conversation. We do not start a conversation. We continue a conversation in prayer. And this is what the psalmist is saying to us, that you have to meditate. In meditating, you, you don't create, you respond. 
You just communicate. And I don't know about you, but that's really freeing for me. Because even for me, when I go and I set aside times to pray, or I think about how much more I should pray and all that sort of thing, then I think like, oh, I, have to, I, have to, I have to generate something. I have to build something up. The psalmist says, no. You enter in. You be quiet. You calm down. And you listen. You listen to what God has already said. And that's really the last thing to focus on, that what God has already said is his word. Prayer meditates on the word of God. And I imagine, uh, I've had conversations with other people, and this might be going through your head too, uh, the, the sort of question comes up, well, can't I just do this through any other religion? Can't I just meditate and calm my mind and slow down through any other religion? I mean, that's, that's what so many other religions teach, isn't it? Buddhism and Hinduism that you just, you calm, you sit in an uncomfortable position for hours on a hard wood floor with nothing else in the room and you don't think about anything. And my response in Psalms, the psalmist's response here is no, absolutely not. That's completely wrong. The difference between Christianity and every other Eastern religion is that meditation in any one of those is an emptying of the mind. This is not Christianity. Christianity is a filling of the mind. It is a call to fill your mind with not your thoughts or anyone else's, but with God's thoughts. And so as we come and slow down and listen, what we do, what we're supposed to do is meditate on God's word. And the word used here is the law of the Lord. It's Torah. It's the first five books of the Bible. Not only that, uh, it's really more than that. It's the entire Old Testament is the command. We are to come and think on God's words. And the psalmist gets very specific here. He says you need to meditate on it. The word, I don't normally uh, try to brandish the Hebrew words, but I think it's important. Haga is the word. And I tell you that because the word sounds like mumble. What happens if you say haga? Haga, 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 haga. That's the point. It sounds like mumbling. That's what this meditation is supposed to be. It's not you just thinking about God, but you, you reading, you listening, you hearing God's word, and then you taking that in, and all day long, and all night long, saying, haga, haga, haga. The righteous man is like a tree, meditates on the law of the Lord. So that's what meditation in prayer is supposed to be. In contrast with this, obviously, is the wicked. The wicked, what are they doing? They're not meditating, are they? They have a counsel, but it's with each other. See, the righteous person in Psalm 1 meditates on the law of the Lord, and as he does, he is rooted. He has life, he's fruitful, and he is the picture of a tree. When difficult times come, he's evergreen. It doesn't matter. But the wicked, how are they pictured in Psalm 1? Not meditating. They're pictured like chaff. Now, if you're not familiar with chaff, let me just tell you, you are familiar with chaff. If you ever have popcorn and you get that annoying little kernel stuck in your teeth, that's chaff. That's what popcorn, the, the kernel, the, the husk of the kernel of popcorn is. It's chaff. And to an agrarian society, they would see this and say like, oh, I know exactly what that's like. What they would do as they gather grain is they gather it all in one big pile and then they put it in an open area where the wind would blow across and they would take something like a pitchfork 
and then toss up the grain. And as they tossed it up, the crosswind would blow through and remove all the husk, all the, all the elements of the grain that were really insubstantial. They didn't matter. Nobody wanted it. And that's what the psalmist says the wicked are like. The wicked are like somebody who are like the chaff. What is, what's substantive about the chaff? What's chaff good for? Absolutely nothing. The only thing that it's really good for is burning. And that's what the psalmist says, that the wicked person is burned up like the chaff. You see, we need to feel the point pressed on us by the psalmist here. If we do not meditate, what the psalmist is saying, let me be clear. If we do not meditate on God's word, then we are like chaff. That's what the psalmist is saying. Not only will you be unable to navigate the difficult times of life, you won't stand in them, but you will also fall into judgment. These two paths that are before us are here to reflect on, to muse on, to think on. And the psalmist says, think about your life. Which way are you? So do you make room in your life for silence and solitude and meditation? Do you do that? It's a really practical question. Is there time in your life for that? Do you plan for it? Do you see how important it is? Prayer is about meditation. If we are to learn to respond to God in prayer, then we must go to the garden of meditation. It's not optional. It is foundational to understanding and participating in the entire Psalter. That's the entire Psalms book. We've got to do it. So that's point one, that prayer is about meditation. But we also see that prayer is about adoration. The second part of the gate that we see is that Psalm 2 presents us with adoration. Psalm 2, unlike Psalm 1, is not a garden psalm. It's not one about the Torah. It has a completely different feel. And it is a psalm of royalty. It's a royal psalm. Speaking about the Messiah. And the main image that you can associate it with it isn't a garden. It's actually a throne. Let's read it together. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Who sits? He sits in the heavens and laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The feel of Psalm 2 is totally different, isn't it? You read Psalm 1 and you think, this is wonderful. If you can slow down for it. It's serene, it's calm. There are flowers everywhere. You can hear a bubbling brook. In your imagination, it's reflective. But Psalm 2 is totally different. Psalm 2 is shocking. 
It's chaotic. It's violent. And how does this relate to adoration? There's really a contrast that's happening here in the compilation of the Psalms. As Psalm 2 comes to us, Psalm 2 is about adoration, but it's a contrasted adoration. It's saying what should happen here for God, for who he is, for his kingship, is adoration. You should love him. If you're someone who's in Psalm 1, and the righteous man who's meditating, Psalm 2 comes and you should say, I love that guy, not I hate that guy. But that's how Psalm 2 reads. And the shocking truth that we see in Psalm 2 is this, that the whole world is actually rebellious. Everyone in it. You see, Psalm 1 comes before Psalm 2 because Psalm 1 gives us perspective. It slows us down to see what the world is really like. And then we read Psalm 2, and what do we read? Rage, nations, turmoil. The way that the world actually is after going through Psalm 1 tells us that the entire world is raised up against God. And as, of course, later in the Old Testament says that there is no one good, not one. No one does, no one is righteous, no one does good. This is what Psalm 2 is telling us. The shocking truth is that everyone apart from God is wicked. And you can see this in the list, that it's nations, peoples, kings, rulers. There's a worldwide coalition against God. A worldwide coalition. Everyone is against God here. And what are they against? What do they hate? They hate that his authority is on them. In verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They can't stand that God is an authority over them. Can't stand it. And one of the main ways that we know this, that really would come, come out a little bit more in the Hebrew for you, is in the word plot. So as you're reading through and it says, why did the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The word for plot is actually the exact same word for meditate. Hagah. Same word. What do you think the psalmist means by that? I'll tell you what I think the psalmist means is to say that the righteous man meditates on the law of the Lord, but in reality... The wicked meditate on how to overthrow God. And this is us. This is the picture that Psalm 2 is painting of all of us. And we have to wonder, is this how we think? Is it how you live? In this way of living, Psalm 2 calls us to a confession. That to see this and recognize it, to own it, we say, as we enter into the rest of the Psalms in prayer, we say, God, this is true. I am this sort of person. I rebel against your authority. I want nothing to do with you. That's how you enter into prayer, with confession. But there's also a submissive aspect to it. Does God permit this rebellion to last in Psalm 2? Absolutely not. He laughs. And just as a side note, this is incredible. The entire world is arrayed against God here. All worldly powers, whether past or present, think about it. Today, all nuclear warheads armed, aimed and ready to fire at God. And what does God do? He laughs. Why? 
What do nuclear warheads do against God? Nothing. This is an incredible comfort to those who know and love God. Because as you, as you go through the Psalms, you'll see this again and again and again. That there are cries for desperation, cries in affliction, cries of lamentation. And behind all of those cries is this truth that God laughs. What's the point of having any authority raised up against God? You see, if you're on God's side, he laughs at all opposition. Which means that if you're behind him, you're safe from any power, any authority, or any other wrong thing that you imagine would be done to you in the world. God is laughing at the powers of the world. That's just a side note. So what, what does God do here? He wins. He wins by sending his son, by sending his Messiah to crush all of his enemies And it's easy for us to look at this and say, well, obviously, he's talking about the son. He's talking about the king. He's talking about Jesus. But for Old Testament believers to see this, let me tell you, they would see it differently. They would read this and they would say, there is a son. There is a Messiah. There is a king. And the way that it would always happen in their culture, and it happens in the Bible as we see it, is that God would designate a king to lead his people. And that king was anointed oil was poured over his head. And as oil was poured over his head, then he would go forth and lead the nation. He would rescue and save them. And so it's not the same for us that it was for them in terms of an easy understanding, but it's still the same message that there is a Messiah, a king who would come, they were expecting. And for us, we know it's Jesus. There is a call to humility at the beginning of the Psalter that instructs us to enter in and be willing to submit yourself to this king. See, this is not just a matter of confession. It's a matter of submission. That as you come in to Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, you say, I understand now. I see the way things actually are. I see the way I actually am. I confess that, and I'm willing to say, save me. I admit it. I need help. We could look at it this way with a comparison of Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. It might clarify things for you. You should have it on the screen. Psalm 1 is asked the question, who is the righteous? Psalm 2 answers that God's son is righteous. Psalm 1 asks, who is wicked? And Psalm 2 answers that we are all wicked. Psalm 1 says that we should meditate on the word of the Lord. And Psalm 2 says that we meditate on rebellion against God. Psalm 1 says that God will judge the wicked, and Psalm 2 shows us that God's Son will judge the wicked. And Psalm 1 says that blessed are the righteous, and Psalm 2 says blessed are those who hide in the sun. And so we have to ask ourselves, have you ever confessed like this? Have you ever submitted yourself to God like this? Or are you somebody who says, you know what, I'm going to do things my own way. If you do, You are living in Psalm 2. That's you. Prayer is about adoration, though. The king of the universe will be worshipped. He will be adored. In his mercy, he gives us the chance to repent. But if we reject his mercy, there's destruction. So there you have it. 
Here's the gate. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. If we're going to learn to pray and to know about the rest of the Psalms, then we have to know these two things. Have to. We have to meditate and we have to see the world as it actually is and as God will actually deal with mankind. That's the way to enter in. But there's something else to look at here. And that is the third point. Prayers about blessedness. You see, in blessedness, we see the two images coming together. So hold in your mind the picture of the garden. And then hold also in your mind the picture of the throne over that chaotic scene. And in blessedness, the two come together. It is a picture of a throne and a garden. And I'll explain that in a little bit. But probably the biggest reason that most commentators agree that Psalm 1 and 2 go together is because of the, uh, the arrangement. I've noted a number of things for you, but most important is the word blessed. Psalm 1 begins with blessed is the man. And depending on the translation you have, the very last word of Psalm 2 is blessed. All who take refuge in him are blessed. And so you see blessed and blessed holding together Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. They come together to show us that prayer is really about blessedness. And that term is blessed is a really rich term in the Bible, really rich term. It's far more substantial than a pleasant life. Your translation, if it's not ESV, may translate it as happy. Happy is a good translation, but it also presents immediate difficulties for us. When you say you're happy most of the time, that doesn't mean that you have a, a deep rooted happiness in your soul that no matter what comes in life, you'll stay the same. That's not what happy means to us. Happy is often circumstantial for us, isn't it? If you go have a good meal, you're happy. If you see a nice movie, you're happy. If someone says something about you or you see a loved one, you're happy. But blessedness or happiness goes far deeper than those things. You could think about it this way, that the blessedness or happiness in this biblical term is wellness in every aspect of a person. Wellness in every aspect of a person. It's, it's a fulsomeness of character, of delight, of enjoyment. And I don't know about you, but when I, when I start to dig into this in the Psalms and I see this, then an immediate chasm opens up for me. And I have to, have to realize, like, I'm not this person. I mean, who's this person that meditates on God's law all the time? I know a fair amount of Bible. I went to school. I went to two schools for a Bible. I understand Bible. But I don't come close to touching this sort of command. There's a huge chasm here. And so we need a refuge. And that's how Psalm 2 ends, that there's a refuge in the Son. Blessed are all who find refuge in Him. And this is what Jesus does for us. Who really meditated on the law of the Lord day and night? It's Jesus. He gives us an example to follow, but it's Jesus. In, in the Sermon on the Mount, which is one of the most important sections in the Bible, how does Jesus begin this epic sermon, this epic teaching time? How does he begin? Blessed. Same word. It's Greek, not Hebrew, but it's the same equivalent. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are those who hunger. What is Jesus doing in the Sermon on the Mount? He's only giving you his own meditations on the law of the Lord. Or it gets better than that later on in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 6, you should have this. Jesus talks about prayer. He says, but when you pray, go into your private room. Shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. That's the garden. Jesus is talking about meditation. He continues, when you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles or the nations. Since they imagine they'll be heard by their many words, don't be like them because your father knows the things that you need before you ask. Therefore, you should pray like this. Our father in heaven Your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What's Jesus doing? He's saying Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Constantly meditating on the law of the Lord. That's the throne. Jesus is talking about his kingship. When these two things come together, we're blessed. Jesus is reteaching his disciples the law of the Lord, but he's doing it by Relation to himself. He's putting himself in it. What was Jesus doing on the cross? Meditating. In excruciating pain. Some of his last words. Psalm 22. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Nobody meditates like this. Nobody. (laughs) No one comes close. And this is good news for us because Jesus did. You see, the word of the Lord, the Torah, the commands, the weight of meditation, God's justice, the word of the Lord can be a delight to us because the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. Meditation on the written word should lead us to meditate on the incarnate word. And that leads us to prayer. And so this is the gospel. This is what Jesus gives us. That as he's betrayed, that as he's hung on the cross, that as he dies for sinners, he goes before us, even in the midst of the pain, to say, you cannot meditate like this. You do not value God's words like this. You do not love God like this, but I do. And I will go before you. I will do what you cannot. And so he does. And and that comes together to give us blessedness. And so would you say that your life is full, happy, or blessed? Prayer is about blessedness. We become the blessed, the most happy people in the world when we believe in Jesus. And as we do, we produce fruit. We become like the tree, producing fruit in its season and is ever green the rest of the time. So that's the gospel. That's blessedness in Jesus. But there's another place where this shows up. And it is given to the apostle John by Revelation. At the end of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 1, we see this. It should sound very familiar to you. Then the angel of the Lord showed me the river of the water of life, 
bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb of God. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more and they will need no light or of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. As we enter the Psalms as a church, we are called to center our minds on God's word. And as we center our minds on God's word, we see the king. And as we live rightly before the king, we will be blessed. This is the way into the Psalms. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for coming to us first, to revealing yourself to us in your word, to calling us to slow down, to meditate, to confess, and to enjoy. God, we confess that we do not love you like you deserve, yet your son stands for us on our behalf, always interceding, always meditating, always giving us life. And we thank you for him. God, we ask that as we enter into the summer and we look into your word and in the Psalms, that we would grow, we would flourish like a tree. We would produce fruit or if it's a difficult time, that we would grow green. And we ask these things in your name for your glory. Amen.